Lord God, we thank you for your relentless uh, pursuit of us, your love for us. Um, we think about the fact that we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you that in this relationship we have with you, you have always been the initiator, the first cause. Um, and we just give you thanks and praise for that. Um, we thank you for the book of Ephesians and the way that it teaches and encourages us. And I pray that as we look at more of chapter 4 this morning, that our hearts would be filled with love for you and just awe at your grace. So we pray that you would bless our time together. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Man, this is the first time I've taught in this space. I'm not sure that I like it quite as much as the other space, actually. Maybe I'll have to fight for a different, different room for this class. I just don't... When you're, like, teaching, like, hard walls and hard floors and just hard angles everywhere, just doesn't help with the audio. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verse 25. And um, I would say that central, there's lots of things, I'm always saying this, this is central to the Christian faith. But this truly is, that central to the Christian faith is uh, this idea of the new self, or the new heart, or a new creation, okay? Um you know, a Christian is not just somebody who's like morally superior to other people. I, I really like the way Ezekiel 36 describes what happens in the life of a Christian. You, you get a new heart. So you become a new creation. Um, and so we're going to continue that theme today. So let me pick up in verse 25 here. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Yes. So in the, in the ancient world, uh, there was a, a sort of discipline called rhetoric. And we don't talk about it much anymore. But uh, the Greeks and the Romans in particular really enjoyed rhetoric. And usually in rhetoric, you would have three aspects to speaking. So rhetoric is this idea of publicly speaking. And you'd have three aspects of it. You would have logos, pathos, and ethos. And uh, I like to think about these things because I think in many ways the Bible has these things integrated in them. So logos just means word or truth. 
So what is the truth that is being communicated? Okay, And then you have pathos. How do you want people to feel in response to that truth? And then the ethos is how do you want people to live in response to that truth? And if you look at the structure of a lot of the books of the Bible, sorry, a lot of the New Testament letters, what you have is you have the logos and then the pathos and then followed by ethos. That's how a lot of these books are actually structured. And that's where we're at in Ephesians. We're talking about the ethos, which is another way of saying this is the ethic. How should we now live in light of the things that are true? Right? So if you go back actually to verses 22, which Jonas was covering for us last week, he says, put off your old self. Okay? So that's the truth. That's a logos. It's like you're a new self. The ethos, the ethic that flows out of that then is kind of what we're looking at in verses 25 through 31 or 32. So you get these commands, this way of living. Put away falsehood, speak the truth, be angry but don't sin, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, okay? So this is the way that Christians should live in light of the truth that we have a new self. So that old self, the stony heart, the dead self, the slave to sin self, was at enmity with God. It was alienated from God. It had futility of mind, meaning it didn't think right. Uh, It had a hard heart. It was given over to sensuality. Right? We, we read all that in verses 17 through 23. But now we're talking about this new self. The new self is created after the image of God. It's made to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. Okay? So the illustration that I like to use here, which I, think, I, 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 can't, I can't figure out if I'm like having deja vu or if I said this to somebody else recently. Um, or I've just been thinking about it, so it's on my mind. But the, the difference between... Uh, like a software update and a whole new operating system. Did I bring this up on Monday? Is that where this came up? Yeah. You, yeah? yeah. Okay. I thought you brought this up. Uh, I, don't know. I, I remember you bringing it up. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about it since studying Ephesians. So if I brought it up on Monday, it's because I was already working on this. You know, when you... Uh, so forgive me if this is... If you've heard this before, but... When, when you like run your iPhone Apple update overnight or if you use Google, whatever it is, you wake up the next morning and what's really changed? Not much, you know? You might have some cooler fonts or some different shades of coloring and like maybe the, you know, the apps have moved around a little bit. But like really it's the same thing, okay? Versus a whole new operating system. I mean, I honestly at this point couldn't even buy an Android phone because it would just be too confusing. It's a totally different, I, I've used app, like an iPhone for as long as I've had a smartphone, and so I'm just stuck now, right? So this is, this is the Christian transformation that takes place. It's not just a software upgrade where you become a slightly more moral person or you go to church on Sunday. You become a radically different person. A whole new operating system is functioning in you. It's no longer the operating system of slavery to sin and sensuality and self-centeredness and evil. It is and sin. It is now the operating system of glorifying Jesus and his life inside of you and love for God and love for others. Okay? So that was kind of a long introduction, but verse 25, therefore. Right? And you all know what therefore means. Therefore, because of this complete operating system overhaul, because you've become a new creation, because everything is changed, the old is dead and gone, and the new has come. Therefore, 
Now we have this ethic, this way of life, okay? Having put away falsehood. So, we, so because this change has happened in us, we put away falsehood. We speak the truth to our neighbors because we are members of one another, okay? So he's beginning to unpack, like, what does the Christian way of living look like in practice? Now, I have a question for you here. Look at verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, does Paul have in mind here only the community of Christ, or does he have a bigger picture of the brotherhood of humanity, I guess you could say? In this kind of setting where we're in like a Sunday school, we can be a little bit more academic than just like a sermon. And so I like to ask you to think very carefully about this because it's different. Uh, I mean, in some ways it's the same, right? No Christian should engage in falsehood. But if we are gonna think carefully about what God's word says, what does Paul mean when he says, speak the truth with his neighbor, we are members one of another. How far does the membership responsibility or obligation that you have extend? To each other? Yeah, so... Uh, I, we should do it with everybody and get our friends to do it. Yeah, so I would agree with that. And I would agree with that not just because I feel that way, but because look at the text. Let each one of you speak the truth with who? His neighbor, right? He, he doesn't say with maybe his brother where you might assume that's a word that's used to speak about the church, we're brothers and sisters. Um, I think the word neighbor here gives us a very broad application for all of humanity. Remember when Jesus is, um, is asked by the, um, by the Pharisee, you know, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the, uh, the Good Samaritan which is a guy who, who, at least from the Jewish way of thinking, would, he would not think is my neighbor, right? This is a guy that I don't, I'm not obligated to love, okay? Um, or what about this? Uh, God comes to Cain and, uh, and he says, you know, where is your brother Abel? And you remember what Cain says? Am I my brother's keeper? And, and, and what is the implied answer to that, if you remember that story? How does God respond to that answer? That he was, right? He's, yeah, God's not happy at Cain's response. He's very displeased. And so the implied answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper, right? We are members one of another, okay? Um, so there's no, what, what I'm getting at here is there's no, uh, exemption to this where you know you, you can't say uh, well look you know we only really need to be truthful to one another when it comes to my boss you know he's kind of a harsh guy he doesn't love Jesus anyway and he's a bit of a jerk so I don't think I really need to like speak the truth to him no the obligation is laid on all of us in any context to speak the truth with one another now so I just sort of made the argument for why this uh, ethic about being truthful applies to sort of everyone. But having said that, the Greek word here for members, okay? So I've said, look, neighbor means this is, a broad, this is very broadly applicable to our lives. But this word here for member is the Greek word melos, 
And melos can literally mean a limb or a body part. So I would actually say that the context here, if you go back a little ways, um, if you go back to uh, verses 11 through 16 in Ephesians, see that? What does he talk about there? You remember? Jonas, you taught on this for a while. There is, uh, even all the way back to 220, it says you all are members of God's household. Right. So and then obviously in here he's saying one another, one another. And he's yeah. saying because you are changed, which is not the case for all believers, then you live differently. And of course there is no situation in ethics in the Bible, so whatever is good and true, it's good and true everywhere. Yes. So, you know, that doesn't mean that it's just restricted to us and then we can lie to our to our colleagues or, or anything, but uh, still I would say that this is directly speaking to Christians. Yeah, and that's ultimately the application that I'm going to make as well, right? I think when you go back to verses 11 through 16, what you see is he's talking about what does church membership look like. And this word melos in the Greek particularly means like body parts, which is very much Christian language of the Christian community. But you've already uh, sniped my, my next point, which is where I'm going with this. And I love it. I, I love that you're on top of this. Um, ultimately, this brings up a question, right? Whether Paul is talking about applying the way of Jesus to the entire world, to our neighbors and our enemies, or he's talking about applying it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In reality, is there any place where a Christian should treat non-Christians different than Christians? Now, we might say, okay, well, there is a particular aspect of our love for one another that comes in the church. But when we're talking about the kind of ethic he's giving here, uh, speak the truth, be angry, but don't sin, uh, labor with your own hands, don't steal, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Does that apply in some way only to believers and not to everybody? So the argument that I'm making here is the same one that you made, Jonas, maybe better than I'm saying it, which is the way of Jesus as it's lived out in the life of the Christian should be lived out the same, whether they're in the context of the community of Jesus or not. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's like yeah. treat everybody the same if they're, you know, uh, Christians or not. Yeah, we pray for our enemies. We love those who persecute us. Now, again, I think there are some very specific, the Bible teaches about the one another's that define the church, okay? So it's going to be hard to do that kind of living with somebody who's not a Christian, but you can still treat them the same way that you would treat somebody who's a believer. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. No. Uh, let me try and let me just try and clarify if I've created confusion. I think that Paul has in mind here the community of Christians. But when he did I say uh, Paul? Yeah, Paul. Um, 
I think he has in mind here the community of Christians, but when he brings in this word neighbor, it should open up our thinking to realize this is not merely a way that we live with other believers in relationship. This is how we should be living with everybody, right? Who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yeah. Like, we are members of one another. Like, because we're a member of one another, everybody else, like, in a different way. That's what it sounds like. In my head, it makes sense, but. Try it again, because I'm not sure I am okay, following. So, like, for example, right? I would say, like, everybody here's a place to love Christ. And therefore, everybody here, we're a member of one another. Therefore, we treat, every, like, not only here, but everywhere we go, everyone in a family manner. Yes. Yeah, I think maybe uh, a way that I can summarize it is like we should not behave differently towards someone whether they are a Christian or not. We should love all people sincerely the way that Jesus loved people. Now, our expectations for Christians in the body of Christ are different. And you've got Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 saying, throw that guy out of the church, right? He's got no business being here based on the way that he's living. Um, so we have different expectations, right? Like my neighbor who's not a Christian, I have very low expectations for the way that they're going to reciprocate love. For you all who are believers, I have high expectations for the way that you're going to reciprocate love. And I think that's good. Um, because you have the one another obligation, love one another, right? The world is living in opposition to that. So I just have the burden to love them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So okay. it's easy here, but the test is outside. Well, I, I love your idealism. I have found that sometimes even in the church it is difficult. But yes, it should be in the community of Christ a simple thing for us to love one another. And, and we, should, we should actually expect abuse from the outside, right? Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Um, so... Uh, but the way of Jesus is a way of love towards all people. Um, and that's, that's important. So let's reflect for one second on the command to put away falsehood and to speak truthfully. Um, I think this is a command that we just don't take very seriously. Okay? Um, and, you know, probably not in the big things, right? Like, you're probably not an outright liar in the big things. Um, but... You know, think about the ways that we are tempted to just deceive or maybe mislead or, you know, we use words like fudge the truth or little white lie, um, those kinds of things. Uh, the, the, the ethic here is put away falsehood and speak the truth, right? So uh, this should challenge us a little bit. You know, um, we, yeah, we are often tempted to get away with small little lies that are not really significant, right? I mean, examples are, you know, why are you five minutes late to work? Oh, it, it was the traffic. But no, you slept, you hit the snooze button, right? Like it wasn't the traffic, it was your choice, but you blame it on the traffic. That's deceptive. Um, 
the somebody invites you to something and you know you're not going to go because you don't want to go and so you just say oh yeah maybe yeah right like if you know you're not going to go then that's dishonest right so the yeah the expectation is that we would speak the truth what about be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil okay yeah yeah please Alright, so I had someone in my family. Um, the, you know, this person uh, has been engaged in some um, business, uh, let's just call it general business work, right? That involves something that is just up, upright, uh, unchristian, ungodly speaking. And so then I told the, the person, you know, look at what the Bible says right here. You have nothing that should come out of your mouth that is obscene, that is not glorifying to God. And then the person said, oh, but to whom is that written? I said, well, that's written to the church of this place and that place. And you say, see, this is what you do when you're in the church. Oh, really? So then you mean to tell me that when you're in the church, you should not have those, uh, uh, you know, horrible words in your mouth. But when you go out to do this and that, then it's fine. Oh, so they were saying yeah. they were saying a Christian can live like that out in the world, yeah. just not in the church. Just incredible nonsense. Wow. <laughs> so then I said, no, that's not how it works, right? So so much like reasoning, deception through the text. The text says yeah. it. There's nothing you can you cannot go to the left and right. You're boxed. Yeah. And then somehow finds you know a ridiculous argument as to why it's okay to do that. Yeah. So this is this is. Crazy, but it is crazy. Is that like a part-time Christian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Christian. Yeah, so if I can, I know you have other thoughts to share, but if I can reply to that. You know, I, I like to say that the kingdom of God is everywhere the human heart is submitted to the will of God. The kingdom of God is everywhere the human heart is submitted to the will of God. Okay? And then what that means is, if this person is in the kingdom of God, what must their heart do? Submit to him, not in some location, but always, because the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Where is it? It's not some location. It's not some country. It's the authority of Christ practiced in our lives. So whether you're around the body of Christ in church or out there, if you are in the kingdom of God, his will must be done. Church activities, but it's almost like when you're at home, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Or because you're an adult, you're allowed to do certain things that children are not allowed. Yeah. And that is can go on, right? And I think sometimes, and I'm not saying that I believe. At one point, um, I think I had a label of Christian, but in my house, for example, that word forgiveness, right? It says that we are, we should be fast to forgive. But at home, maybe I wasn't doing that. I'm correct, I wasn't doing that. And I would get mad at my husband or at my children or why not. Um, and then it would take days. So my kids would look at it and would be like confused because it's like, okay, mom outside says this, but inside the house she does wonder what. Yeah. So that is extremely confusing. Yeah. And therefore, some people rightly so say, well, uh, the term like we are fake. And so I think like, if we say we're Christians, to your point, we need to do it everywhere. Yeah. At home, when nobody's looking, right. uh, and wherever we go. Yep. 
Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And, and if your heart is, is with him, you will honor him with your lips, but not only with your lips. Everything you do will be seeking to honor him. And that's ultimately what we're after. This new creation, this new heart, this death to sin and life to Christ. Um, because that's going to bring us into like alignment with Jesus. No, there won't be falsehood. Yeah, you wanted to add more. Yeah. The argument I gave in the earlier verse, like, look, the text says, do not steal. So you mean to say it's okay to uh, steal outside of the church, but not in the church? Mm-hmm. Or it says evil speaking. You mean to say, you know, and then it says, uh, you know, bitterness, wrath, anger. Uh, and, and then, so you mean to say it's okay to murder uh, at your work, but not in the church? And wait, the church is not a building, it's the people. Right. So if you are members of this church, the church is everywhere all the time. You right. have no place to go anywhere anytime. Yep. Right? And so what I like about this, right, is that it says that if you are part of the body of Christ, then it has like this. It's basically saying, you think membership is not meaningful? Look at what Paul says. Yeah. So because you're a member, so you should be a member, yep. then you don't lie. And so another thing that can be said is that, and kind of that's what you were saying, I mean, because you're part of the church, you have no business doing this outside. Why? Because you're members of one another. And like it says in First Corinthians, if one member suffers because of sin, all suffering, that's made it's the same point, then everyone is going to suffer. Yep. So you can go out, go out and lie if you're a Christian in your job, because look how how the reputation of Christ, how all the saints are going to be set, how the church is going to have trouble, all because of you. Yeah. So we don't do that. Yeah. Like this is so good. Profound. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's there's another level. I mean, we could probably talk about this all day, but there's another level of this. And and for some reason, my mind is cloudy on this. But um, there's like an Old Testament passage where God says that essentially. The nations slander him because of the way the Jews behave. In other words, uh, God is saying, I have given you my law and it's divine. But because you don't keep it, the other nations look at me and say, he must not be God. Right. And, And this is another reason why we need to live like this is because what we are claiming is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life can be radically changed. You can be set free from sin. And if we don't live like that, then we're saying our gospel is a lie. It's false, right? All right. Uh, Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger except when you're dealing with flies that attack your face. (laughs) It doesn't say that, but, you know. Give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, so this is interesting, right? Um, Paul seems to make a distinction here between anger that is acceptable and anger that is not acceptable. So there's a sinful kind of anger and there's a kind of anger that might not be sinful, right? Because he says you can be angry, but he says don't fall into sin in the midst of your anger, okay? God was angry many times that it wasn't sinful. Yeah, so there is a just and righteous kind of anger that is a reflection of God's perfections. So I've got a couple of verses for you. Jeremiah 30, 23 to 24. I'll just read them for you. Um, It says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. So here's anger and wrath. 
that God has uh, that is not sinful. Revelation 19 verse 15 Speaking of Jesus in the future at, at his return, says from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So uh, it is just and right and good for God to feel wrath about things that are contrary to what he loves and desires. Um, but here's the thing, okay? We have to admit in humility that our anger is often not this kind of anger. So James chapter 1 verse 20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then Matthew chapter 5 verse 22, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, so, you know, we need to be very cautious. I think it can be tempting to be like, no, this is a righteous anger, and, you know, therefore it's acceptable. I would say that the vast majority of the time our anger is self-centered and therefore unrighteous. Okay, so uh, Paul can say, be angry and do not sin. Be cautious about your anger. Um, so I think there's kind of two possible meanings here explained by the nature of the anger. Okay, um, I think anger gets expressed in two primary ways. The first one is the outburst of anger. Right? Raise your hand if you've ever been guilty of an outburst of anger. Okay. This is the kind of stuff that makes you yell at your children uh, unrighteously. It's the kind of thing that draws out road rage from crazy people. Okay? So, be angry and do not sin. Okay, well, uh, if you have the outburst of anger, what have you already done? Sin. Sin. Right? You've already sinned. Okay? So then I think you're brought into sort of the second piece of this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which would mean don't let that sin go unconfessed. Okay? Don't let the devil get an opportunity to exploit, exploit that relational rift. Um, don't let your, self, your lack of self-control win. You know, bring it back under control through confession. Don't let the damage that you've done further harden your heart. So you've got that piece, okay? Because we're not perfect. And so if you do sin in anger, then don't let the sun go down on your anger. Make sure you go address that and you get it right. But the second one, I think, is the smoldering anger of contempt. Okay? Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been just internally angry at somebody but it's never manifested in something outward I mean, I'm guilty of that right so this is a the smoldering anger of contempt is a very dangerous anger uh, it doesn't express itself in some kind of lashing out but in time what it turns into is it metastasizes into hatred and bitterness and enmity and so then, in this case, the command would be, 
to extinguish those smoldering coals before they turn into a raging fire. Okay? And again, I think this would be maybe an illustration Cain and Abel. Right? Cain let the sun go down on his anger over and over and over again. And that eventually grew into a murderous hatred for his brother. Any thoughts on anger? We're all guilty of it at one point or another. Yeah, and so Paul would say, don't. <laughs> but then if you do, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think it's uh, the verses that you read talking about anger. Uh, that's kind of like making you feel like you uh, think that you uh, will be in anger and wrath on the same category. And for me, there's a difference between anger and wrath. Um, and, uh, well, because they are not the same words uh, originally. And um, wrath is always used for God and not for men. Um, so, do you think the same? Do you think there is a like, I'm not saying that God doesn't have anger because I find verse uh, 7, for example, uh, chapter 7 in the Psalms uh, that says, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Um, and so, yeah, God has anger, but there's another kind of anger that is judgment, which is his wrath. So, so then are you saying that a, a person can't experience that? I would say that wrath is never used for men and it would be a sin. It's like something that uh, yeah, it belongs to God. Wrath is the judgment. Is not, it doesn't belong to men. Yeah. But in mean, here it says you're all right. What do you mean? It says in the end of verse 26, it says be angry do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So it, it is saying that men have wrath, but it, it, it is, uh, I think, it would be the right application based on what you're saying. That, you know, the wrath, the judgment, it's on God's hands, so we don't have any vengeance. Or... So your, your version actually uses the word wrath there? Because the yeah, ESV says anger. Yeah, I didn't look at that either. I, I mean, to some degree, I think it's a, it's a distinction without a difference, and here's why. Whatever God feels is good and right and true. Whatever man feels that aligns with what God feels is good and right and true. Whatever man feels that's contrary to that is, is bad, is evil. Uh, or we could say it another way. Whatever God thinks is good and right and true, whatever we think that's in accordance with what he thinks is good and right and true, whatever's contrary is wrong, okay? So what I'm getting at is by definition, anything that God feels that is wrath or anger is acceptable, is, is perfect, right? Yeah, but not always for men. That's not always right. but what I, But what I'm saying is, if I feel the same as God feels, I'll give you an example. A video came out this week of uh, a, a, a conference for abortion providers. And in it, they were basically saying, yeah, we know this is a baby, and we don't care. And like, I mean, it was one of the most evil things that I, had, I have ever seen, like an inside picture of what these people actually think. And it was disgusting. And you know what it made me feel? Rage. And I think that was a righteous, wrathful rage. Do I think that it's appropriate then for me to go into that conference and beat these people up or you know, murder them? No, God, that's, that's for God to do. But I think I was, I think I was right to feel wrath. Not, not, be, not because of me, but because this is an offense against God. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I would, I would still say that there are some things that belongs to God and not to man. Like it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's bad, but there are some attributes that are Absolutely. from God and not from man. For yeah. example, uh, like God deserves to be worshipped and man does not. So <laughs> if you worship man, you, you're not you're not doing something, something right, right. So there are some attributes like worshipness and, and I add wrath that belong to God and Okay, well, the, so to respond to that, technically, if you're going to look into like a church systematic theology, wrath would actually be a communicable attribute, not an incommunicable attribute. Okay, so I, I don't know how familiar you are with those categories, but in systematic theology, the incommunicable attributes are God's attributes that are not shared with us. The communicable attributes are God's attributes which are to either a lesser or greater degree in some way shared with us, and anger or wrath falls under the communicable attributes category. So I don't know whether that makes a difference in, in your mind. And like, I think I get what you're saying. I would, I would say technically, theologically, that's not how systematic theology has typically thought of anger or wrath. So. But you're totally right to say there are some things that belong to God and not us. Amen to that. Um, and this is why James will say the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we need to be very careful about that. All right. Uh, let's get into give no opportunity to the devil, which, um, I mean, I'm not going to get through all my notes. There's just no way. But this is... Uh, this connects uh, pretty significantly with my sermon this morning because we're going to be talking about from First Peter how your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So give no opportunity to the devil. Here's what I would say uh, about the devil. The devil is a master manipulator of potential energy. The devil is a master manipulator of potential energy. So can anybody define in physics what potential energy is? I didn't do the best in physics. Okay, in physics, potential energy is energy held by the object that is not yet put into motion, okay? So uh, I'll give you some examples of this. Think about a bowling ball Sitting, sitting, teetering right on the edge of a slide. Potential energy, right? All it takes is for that bowling ball to move a couple centimeters and all of this energy that is gravity working on this ball is going to be released, okay? Or what about the powder inside of a stick of dynamite? That's potential energy. And when it is released, it explodes. So what the devil is doing is, by tempting us, uh, releasing that potential sin energy that is stored inside of us. So the devil would love to just push that bowling ball to get it rolling. The devil would love to light the fuse of that stick of dynamite and get it counting down. But, uh, and, and, and so, what? When you, are, when you are allowing yourself to think on sin or move towards sin or, or 
entertain the idea that's connected with temptation, you are the one lifting that bowling ball and giving it the gravitational energy that the devil can then exploit. But if you take that bowling ball from the top of the slide and you put it on the ground, then you've removed that potential energy, right? If you take the powder out of the stick of dynamite, then you remove the potential energy. So give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, I think connected to this would be things like confession. When you acknowledge your sin before God, then you give it over to him, you repent of it, and you say, I don't want to engage in this. Well, then you've removed the potential energy, right? Uh, you know, the mind that is renewed and sanctified. This is why the Bible again and again and again says, you know, renew your minds. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, whatever is pure, lovely, good, right, true, think about these things, Okay. By looking to Jesus, we diffuse the potential energy that is the sin inside of us. So here's the thing that's terrifying is like we want to blame maybe a lot of our sin on external causes, right? That old phrase, the devil made me do it. Or we live in a world right now that says to people that are criminals, well, they're only criminals because they didn't get a good enough education, or they're criminals because of the neighborhood that they grew up in, or the abuse they suffered as a kid, or the color of their skin, or these kinds of things, right? Um, but actually, what, what Satan is really good at is he takes the cracks in our characters and he puts his nasty little fingers in there and he just begins to spread those cracks. And, and we allow that, essentially, when we give in to temptation. But we have an opportunity to bring those cracks to Jesus and let him cover them, right? Cement them up, repair them, so that there's nothing for the devil to exploit. Give no opportunity to the devil. And, uh, you know, connected to this, let's go into it maybe a little bit further, is this idea, where does sin originate? The mind and the thoughts and the heart. In the human heart, right? Um, if you look at the way the devil exploited the opportunity of Eve's ignorance or innocence uh, he didn't have to pluck the apple and bring it to her and tell her eat the fruit. Yeah. sorry you're right the fruit thank you um, I mean really if it if it's gonna be you know connected to sin it's probably like a banana or a pickle or something I, I remember Audrey saying you were saying it's a pickle pickle probably um, <laughs> the, the point is the, the devil just exploited the opportunity, right? He didn't, he didn't make this happen. Uh, he led her into temptation, but ultimately it was her who made the decision. So James chapter 1, verses 13. Oh, go ahead. I was going to bring it up. Because in James, um, it's interesting that it doesn't mention the devil entitled with our own desires. Yeah. Yeah, so let me read the verses. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, 
and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so then where does the temptation come from? James tells us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not the devil, it's his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? So, don't kid yourself. When you engage in sin, you need to acknowledge what is true about you. You are the kind of person who desires that. And that's really where God needs to do the work. He needs to do the work not merely on your actions, but on your heart, where the desire itself lives. All right, if there's no other thoughts on that, we'll go into verse 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So again, we're getting this contrast. What does the dead, stony, sinful heart naturally do in a thief? He steals, right? But that's contrasted with what is the way of Jesus when you have a new heart that honors God and loves him? honest work with your hands okay so this is the idea of the new self the new heart um you know i i mean is so let's just take the city of san francisco right now right they've got a horrible uh crime problem um you can expect that if you park your car pretty much anywhere in san francisco right now it's going to be broken into and everything inside of it is going to be stolen and if you call the police you know what they're going to say nothing we can do about it we don't care um and so, you know, it's, it's honestly kind of understandable that thieves then would steal. What is a thief who has a hard criminal heart afraid of? The law. Only the law, right? They're only afraid of the consequence of the, uh, you know, the immediate consequence of maybe getting caught. And if you remove that consequence, then you have lawlessness, right? Um, but it's totally understandable because the human heart cares about what naturally Ourself. only itself right um, and so there's no real motivation for a pagan not to sin the only motivation for a pagan not to sin is what the law of media quantity. yeah just getting caught right the consequences that might come from getting caught so you know let's take a non-christian guy who is like caught up in pornography what does he care he doesn't care. The only consequence is maybe his wife will find it, find out, and then she'll be mad at him. Um, but he's got basically all the reason in the world to keep doing that sin because he's not motivated by anything other than sin. But the the new heart is motiva- motivated by love for God. It's motivated by the Holy Spirit. It's motivated by the wisdom of God. It's made after the likeness of God himself, right? Look back at verse 24. This new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so then as a result, the one who used to be a thief who has been transformed should now no longer live by dishonest gain. Um, he should be directing his, his efforts, his skill, his knowledge, his hands towards what is honorable to God. Um, and now notice the shift that the gospel makes here, right? The thief, this is so beautiful. Did you notice this? The th- what did the thief used to do? 
Now look at the end of the verse. What does the thief do? Yeah, so he used to take from others. And now he gives to others, right? This is the radical transformation of the gospel. It's not that he just stops taking from others, but he becomes the kind of person who's actually other-centered instead of self-centered. Um, before, a thief never would have thought of giving some of what he had to others. He thought only of taking what others had for himself. Uh, there's also here a, a subtle endorsement for work. Right? Paul says, let him labor doing honest work. So how many of you sometimes hate your job? Like, even as a pastor, I sometimes hate my job. I don't know anybody who always loves their job. And I think we tend to believe that um, because work can sometimes be frustrating, that work must be a result of the fall. But it's not, right? What did God say to Adam in the garden before the fall? He did. He placed him in the garden to have dominion over it, to rule over it, to basically tend it, to keep it for God's glory. So even prior to sin entering the world, work was in the world. And guess who else worked? Remember Genesis chapter 1? God did, right? For six days, and then on the last day, he rested. So work is not inherently sinful. The, the thing that frustrates us about work is the curse, which has brought futility into work. Right? So I go out to tend my garden, I pull my weeds, and guess what I have to do three months later? Pull them all over again. <laughs> three right? months? What are you doing? I know, right? Three to, months is good. Yes, yeah. three months is good. That's the thing about work that is frustrating. But work is inherently dignified. You know, tragically, our society dreams of a utopian world where people get a universal basic income, where they don't have to work. Right? The government will just send you 2000 bucks a month, and you can sit at home and play your video games and order your, your Uber Eats. But that would be a disastrous thing for humanity because work is part of what it means to be human. Um, work is itself good. And uh, I think we can even anticipate work in the life to come, um, not merely because it will be sort of a, a restoration of the Edenic reality that God made for man. But you have in Revelation, in the uh, letters to the seven churches, references to things like judging. So we will judge, we're to judge angels, and also to ruling and reigning with Christ. Ruling and reigning is work. So I think we can anticipate that in eternity we will work, just all of the sinful futility connected to work will be gone. Um, one final point here to verse 28 is that uh, I, I realize Paul speaking to the thief, no longer steal, instead work. But at the end there, he says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I think we can draw from this a principle that as Christians, we are to manage our own finances in such a way that we should have something to share with anyone who's in need. Um, you know, we're going to go through different seasons of life. You know, some, maybe you go through a season of unemployment and you, you're struggling to get by. And so the church comes alongside of you and supports you in that. But we should not in any way as Christians look like a girl with 
massive credit card debt that is just absolutely immoral, living paycheck to paycheck, squandering our finances on foolish things like bigger TVs and nicer cars. There's nothing inherently immoral with those things, okay? But what is immoral is not having something to share with someone in their time of need. Does that make sense? So, uh, you know, this is something our, our church needs to continue to work on. I think at some point we want to offer kind of like a, you know, Financial Peace University or Crown Ministries course on, you know, financial good stewardship of your finances. But Christians should not reflect the world uh, in the way that they just live in debt. That's unacceptable. All right, we're going to have to end there. Anybody want a final comment on that? Last word there? I like how when we're working, we're laboring for the kingdom of God. I mean, sometimes the fertility comes upon our minds thinking it might be in vain, but um, God, you know, um, not only God, but of course Peter mentions numerous times, of course our labor is not in vain. Uh, even though he would think, he thought many times, he feared that his labor would be in vain. Sure. Like he says, any, any work we do for the kingdom of God is not in vain. And to contrast to God, who there's no sin in him, when he labors, none of it's in vain. All his work is for good. And yeah. produces something good. So. Amen. That's good. And I would say even our work as, even our work that's not necessarily f for the kingdom, that sometimes feels in vain, is actually... Well, God working all things together for the good of those who love him, right? So it's building in us virtue and character and perseverance and hope and steadfastness. And it may be even as we serve this corporation over here, but it's still a good thing in the eyes of God. So, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Let me pray. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a, another really good point. And yeah, I mean, sometimes I think people think, oh, like Christian work is good work. No, all work is good work because God made work. Um, you know, obviously there are things that are immoral that you shouldn't do. Okay, so I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying work that is done for the glory of God is inherently good. Work that provides for your family is inherently good. Paul can say if anyone is unwilling to provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So that, that's an important aspect of work. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more we could say about this. Let me close this in prayer. I think that, um, man, so next week you're up again, right, to teach. Could I have maybe 15 minutes at the beginning to finish? Yeah, okay. Well, we could just plan on that. I'll just teach next week. Um, I can add some more content. And come with something to share. That's it. Yes. Well, the thing is, I want to add is that I'm sorry. I'm just going to share it. On uh, Monday, he has something amazing that's happening. So he's probably going to need like a week to prepare a big interview on site on next Monday. 
Oh yeah, you have a big interview. That's great. I'll pray for that. That's one of the reasons why I'd like to have uh, you know the opportunity to uh, maybe have it next week because I, so since she brings it up, then I'll, I'll give some details. Basically, um, I'm too bold at my job. Many people will be like, "Oh, you mean to me? You mean that you can be just at home and not do much and be paid? Uh, what's the problem with that?" I just can't stand it. So, yeah. um, <coughs> one option is to get more work. I asked. Well, so really. The second option is that I get a second job. I, I did search for that. Third option is to change a job get a different altogether. One. Sure. So the new job would be uh, making it more difficult for the church plan. So I thought, oh, let's put the word out there so I may have some feedback before, if I even get an offer, perhaps I won't, right? And then it's a done deal. And if I get an offer, then in the meantime, I hear people saying, oh, I'm interested about the church plan, then I may say, Oh, let's not take this new job because it looks like it may actually happen in the sure, future. Sure. That's kind of the backstory. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, well that's helpful. Thank you for letting me know that, because that, that can be a factor as our elder team discusses the timing. Yeah. So well, let me pray. Um God, we thank you so much for this radical transformation that you have done in our lives through the gospel. We thank you that you have loved us and seen fit to <coughs> offer grace to us and that you have transformed us and we worship you for that and i pray that we would live in accordance with that transformation um that we would love you with all of our hearts and seek you with all of our hearts and walk in the way of obedience um, would you aid us in that work for your glory amen, amen.